Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that thy people, illumined by thy word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth, one God, now and forever. That's the collect appointed for today, the second Sunday after the Epiphany, January the 16th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's been a pretty good week. Um, we've got some upcoming stuff. we got to go to, um, well, to Duke to, uh, next week to go to, um, to see a neurologist there because of Will's um, seizures that he had been having. He hadn't had one in a while. Um, but so we're, we're hopeful that, um, that maybe that, that part of it's behind us, but we still need to go to a neurologist to get a little bit of work done to make sure that everything is on track and and doing well. So anyway, it's been kind of a cold week here, uh, but a good one at the same time. We're supposed to have maybe some snow coming up this weekend, which I hope we do because I'm a big fan of snow. I'm still like a little kid who um, goes to bed at night, like on Christmas Eve, um, expecting great things in the morning. And over the course of the 61 years of my life, I've certainly been disappointed <laughs> on many, many occasions when snow was predicted and we got nothing at all. And so, but I am, I'm like a kid with, with respect to snow. So it's, it's one of my favorite things in the world is to see a white, um, beautiful landscape like that. And then it's not really my desire or dream to then go out and, well, shovel it all up so that later they can pile it up again in front of the driveway and in heavy clumped stuff. So at any rate, we, we'll see how it goes this weekend. But uh, it's been, yeah, we had a good week, I think. I, I would say that we did. Nothing terribly exciting going on. It's, um, it really enjoyed watching the um, NCAA football championship on um Monday night with the Alabama and Georgia game. It was a great game. I'm sorry that college football's over. I'm always sorry college football's over, though, so it's my favorite thing. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's been, you know, I've got a friend who's in the hospital with COVID, so if y'all will remember it, please, he's not in the hospital now, but he had been, um, but he's still struggling a little bit with the COVID thing. So if you'd pray for my friend David, I would appreciate that. If you've got prayer requests that you'd like for me to consider them, to, to pray for you, to join you in prayer, then please do that um, in resp- on the Facebook page for Faith Seeking Understanding. So we, with the Epiphany, what, what is the season of Epiphany about? Well, it's the manifestation of Jesus. And so what we look at is the, the continuing revelation of Jesus, because there's an unfolding thing that goes on through the life of Christ that that people in John's gospel, particularly John doesn't talk in terms of miracles. He talks in terms of signs and Greek word is simeon, which means sign. It's something that points to something else. It points to a greater reality. It's not just a miracle. It's not something that is done with no purpose other than to do it. No, it's to point to a reality. And, and in this, in the season of Epiphany, the reality is, is that who is Jesus is what these signs point to. And he does these things sort of progressively, at least in the Gospel of John, and it's true in, in all the Gospels, really. But John sort of set out specifically to tell a tale, to tell a story, to reveal Jesus. And it begins with the sort of the simplest miracle, which is the one we're going to look at today, which is turning water into wine at Cana in Galilee at the wedding. And then it continues on through the final revelation would be the, his resurrection. But the final sign that he worked in this life was the uh, raising of Lazarus from the dead. 
So that that's sort of the the trajectory of Epiphany is this unfolding manifestation slash revelation of who is Jesus, and so that's kind of the the way we're going to look at this through this whole time. But but what we're going to get today, we're going to get three different things, right? So we're going to get the promise through the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 62, 1 to 5. We're going to get the promise of this time to come in which Jerusalem will be um, a place where people worship and where people come and come there, that it is the center of the world, which is exactly what Jews believe that it was intended to be, the foundation stone. Uh, they believe the, the foundation stone, which, which was the everything came forth from that foundation stone. There's a lot to that legend. Um, but what they believe is it, it was directly under the um, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so the, 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 the foundation of uh, the world is the Torah. It's those, those two tablets that would have been inside the Ark. And we believe that certainly the foundation stone is Jesus, that the world is founded on him. He was slain from the foundation of the world so we know that, that he is the foundation stone, and he is also the word of God, which would be, well, exactly what that means, with the foundation stone being underneath where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so they, they believe that stone is still there in that place, and so that it is indeed the center of the world, because it's from there everything else came into being. That's a Jewish belief and understanding about the foundation stone. And so what Isaiah's prophecy is today is the the restoration of Jerusalem as the center of the world. And so when it comes, you know, when the Messiah comes, Messiah comes to Jerusalem. We don't see the full outworking of that today because they rejected him. But ultimately in Revelation 21, what we're told is that a new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and that's where the lamb is. That's where Jesus is. So the light, that there's, there's never any darkness in the city, and, and God is the light, and the Lamb is the lamp through which that light shines. And so Isaiah is showing us the fullness of the vision, a portion of which is realized in Jesus. So then what we're going to get is the, what we're going to see is the manifestation of the prophetic word in Jesus, beginning at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then what we're going to see is the continuing manifestation and revelation of Jesus in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, write this, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. So he's writing to an exile community, and this community would be exiled in Babylon after they had overthrown that southern kingdom, which was based in Jerusalem. And so what he's giving is the assurance that he's not done. He's not done with them, and he's not done with Jerusalem. So they can, they can continue to believe and to know that Jerusalem will be a real thing. It'll be the place where his glory resides. And so the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, which was exactly what happened in the time of Solomon, remember, because people came from everywhere. The Queen of Sheba came and all these others came to see the wisdom and the riches of Solomon, which was attributed to his God and his blessing of his God. So it's the same thing. He says it's going to happen again, and it's exactly what we see in Revelation 21 when the kings of the earth bring the glory into the city. 
He said, you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And as an exile community, it would be a difficult thing to see or even imagine that. The last picture you had in your mind of Jerusalem, if you still had it because they were there so long, many would have died while they were in Babylon. So that they would have had a picture or a vision of Jerusalem, but the last thing they saw was devastation and destruction. They saw the walls torn down. They saw the temple defiled and ultimately destroyed. And so that was, that, that was their recollection of Jerusalem. So God's painting a different picture for them there. You'll, have a crown of, you'll be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. He's painting a, future, a picture of the future, a compelling portrait of what that city will be and then what that nation will be again. He said, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, which is exactly what it looked like, certainly, when, when God forsook them and allowed the Babylonians to take over and, and to destroy everything that they had worked for and everything that God had given them. They certainly looked forsaken, and the land certainly looked desolate as they walked away. But, but then you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. So Beulah land is, is what married means, is Beulah is the word that was used there. So, so what you get is, is that, that there's a, it's not forsaken because it's married. It's not desolate because God's delight is in her. He's going to reclaim the nation, reclaim the land for himself. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so there's this, this picture of a wedding feast and, and the married nature where, where they're one flesh. So the nation is one flesh with its God. And so the, then you'll see the blessing of God because they have taken him on like like a, a bride takes on a groom. And, you know, in Revelation, what we see is, is ultimately who's invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the Lamb is who? Jesus. The, who's invited to the wedding feast? Well, the bride. And who is the bride of Christ? Well, that's the church. But the church is made up of individuals. It's not a building. It's, it's individuals. And, and so one thing that we need to, I think, always keep in mind is what does it mean to be the church and what does it mean that we are the church, universal, whether we go to that expression of the church or that expression of the church. At any rate, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are his body on earth. And so that, that's who we are, that we, the, I saw a great thing today, there, there was a guy Walter Lewis Wilson, who was a physician, he was the son of a, a Methodist pastor, and this is back in, in the early part of the 20th century, that, that had struggled with, with, he believed everything, but then somebody said, so there's something missing here. Who is the Holy Spirit to you? And he said, well, he's a member of the Godhead, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's part of the Trinity. He said, no, 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 I, I didn't ask you for a dictionary definition. No, I don't want to know a theological thing there. I want to know who is the Holy Spirit to you. And, and he stammered and stuttered and said, you know, really, he's not very much to me other than that concept that I just gave you. There's nothing real in me about him. 
um, about the Holy Spirit. I, I think I could probably just make it fine for the rest of my life without ever really thinking about such a thing anymore. But he, he felt really haunted by that question. And ultimately, somebody explained to him, the, the Father has no body, the, the Christ had an earthly body, but then the Holy Spirit has no body. But he's still the active and animating force going forward. It's the way Jesus fulfilled his promise to be with us to the end of the age. So he needs your body. And so Wilson went and, and gave his, he said, look, I, I'm sorry. I, I offer myself as a living sacrifice to you so that you might inhabit this body and you might cleanse this body and make it righteous and make it useful for your purpose. And after that, God used this man powerfully to build a church in Missouri and then ultimately Calvary Bible College um, along with that. So it, it's the, the important thing that, that we need to keep in mind is, is that this isn't a human thing. You know, that the body of Christ is not a human thing. It, it, it's made up of humans, but it's made up of redeemed humanity, those who have been given the Holy Spirit of God, because Paul's going to tell us that, that nobody can confess Jesus as Lord unless they have the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk a little bit about what does that mean today, and Paul's going to talk a lot about it in the epistle lesson. But let's go first to the, so the manifestation of the prophecy of Isaiah, where God is going to redeem uh, Zion, and his, his glory is going to be there. But it's going to be there in a different way, and it's going to be there in Jesus. So um, what we looked at last week was the baptism of Jesus, when, when we hear the voice from heaven saying, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so we we see that, and then what people talk about is, is that's when he kind of received the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus lived a sinless life. And if he lived a sinless life, then he lived a sinless life up until the time he was baptized as well. And the only way he could have done that was through the power of the Holy Spirit and his cooperation in yielding to the Holy Spirit in that and, and allowing him to have his way in the same way I just told you about Walter Lewis Wilson. So that, that's the, the, Jesus wasn't given the Holy Spirit at baptism. He, he was, there, there was an empowering for ministry that happened there. And so his time had not yet come to, to begin the ministry part of his life, but his time had always come from the beginning, from the, from the time that, that he took on flesh. He had to have lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So on the third day, and this is after the, the third day after John and the other disciples of John who attached themselves to Jesus had, dis, had, had become his disciples now. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Mary must have had some role here. It must have been a family thing, and she must have had some role here at the feast to, to ensure that everything flowed smoothly. And if they run out of wine, I mean, this feast would last over multiple days, the, the wedding feast would have. And so people would have come from afar, and they would have been there for the wedding, and this huge celebration that goes on for several days. And so the wine ran out, and, and Mary goes to who, like I said, who must have had some official-ish role there, goes to Jesus and lets him know that that wine is gone. Now, what Mary had in mind, what she thought Jesus might do, we have no earthly idea. But I like to believe that God gave Mary a little heads up to say the time is coming. And I'd like to think at some level she got a little word from the Lord there that, that Jesus could and would do something in this place. 
So Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And that's not a term of distance, it's a term of respect. So it sounds jarring to us, because if I looked at my mother and said, woman, what does that have to do with me? She would, even at 82, probably slap me silly. Um, but that's not the way that it would have been heard in, in this situation at all. It would have been a term of respect. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So what did it have to do with him? Well, at some level, it would have had something to do because he would have wanted to avoid the embarrassment to both his mother and to the family of the groom. In those days, in, in uh, Jewish tradition, the, the groom's family bore all the expense of the wedding and the feast and all that kind of stuff. And so, so he would have been on the groom's side. And, and so that there would have been a great stigma that would have attached to this, this failure to, to plan adequately and to provide for their guests. And so what does it have to do with Jesus? Well, nothing specifically personally and, and you know, but there, there's something greater at work here. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she had to have had enough authority to tell them to do that and expect them to comply with whatever Jesus might tell them to do. Um, but what did she think he was going to do? I mean, I'm just fascinated. And uh, she didn't tell him how to do anything. She did make the need known. And, and I think maybe our prayer lives would be better off if, if we could understand the need and ask God for provision. But I think most of the time we come to him with the idea that we know how he can answer the prayer that we have. She leaves it up to Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. She has no idea what he might do. So there were six stone water jars for the rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So you're talking about somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. You know, this is not like, okay, let me run out to the liquor store or the, the grocery store or whatever and get, you know, several cases of wine. No, Jesus looks and he sees the water jars there. And he said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, imagine yourself one of these servants, right? So, so you're sitting there and, and you're sort of, there's nothing you can do. You're just going to do whatever you're told. And so the, Mary tells him to do whatever Jesus tells him to do. And, and I'm sure they're looking at him and thinking, so uh, what's he going to do? And or what's he going to tell us to do? And then he tells them to fill up water jars. Well, did you not understand the problem is wine? Why are we filling up water jars? Um, so they do, and then he tells them to take, he fills them up to the brim. And so then they, he tells them to take it to the master of the feast, and I'm sure that if I'm one of them, I'm thinking, are you serious? I mean, I'm going to look like an idiot if I go over there and give them water. And so the, the, they do, though. They do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. They, they've, they have done exactly what he told them to do. So, so what we've seen first is Mary making a request of Jesus, or not even that really, making known a problem, and then leaving the, the, the sort of solution to that problem to Jesus. And now what we've got are these people, these servants, who are doing exactly what they're told to do, even though it doesn't make any sense at all, they do it because Jesus told them to do it. Now, we can apply that, right, to, <laughs> to our Christian walk. Everything doesn't have to make perfect sense to us. When God tells us to do something, it doesn't have to make perfect sense. It doesn't have to make logical sense. It, it, it's just it's obedience to him and trust and belief in his goodness. This is, okay, if you want me to walk this path, then I'll walk that path, believing that, that it's for my good and your glory in some way or another. 
And so they, they take this water <laughs> that they've drawn out, and they take it to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom to him and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I'm sure the bridegroom's looking like, I have no earthly idea what you're talking about. I don't know where that came from, but okay, great. And so he, he instead of uh, looking bad, he looks fantastic. You know, So there, he reverses exactly what it would have happened had the wine completely run out and Jesus hadn't acted on his behalf. Then he reverses that and makes it a, a thing of praise that he now has brought out this great one. And, this, and then John tells us this, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I'm guessing so did the servants. But the, the, one of the things that's, I mean, it seems like kind of an almost nothing thing to begin with, except what's happening here is these stone water jars, these rites of purification water, um, or something that the purpose of all that was, especially at this time, there was a great belief, especially in the Pharisaic community, that pretty much anything you did contracted defilement to the extent that, that it, it believed the person at some level, even though this was not what they would have said, that, that there's, there's, a, there's sort of a, a clean and an unclean and then holy. And so stuff in the temple was holy. Um, you were clean except they thought that that contact with pretty much anything brought defilement upon them, and so they were fastidious in washing things and themselves all the time. And so there was a great deal of talk and a great deal of writing and a great deal of teaching on the necessity of this ritual purification. It it took seriously yourself— and it took seriously something about defilement from the world. But what it did was it made people unclean. And, and it made a distinction and a difference between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. It, it made that distinction hardened because what it did was to say, anytime I have any contact with you, then I have to go cleanse myself because I'm otherwise, well, I'm not holy, I'm clean. But clean became better than. And so when Jesus comes, what this miracle is saying is, I'm doing away with all that stuff because the kingdom of God is here. And wherever I am, the kingdom is. And wherever the kingdom is, is clean. And so there's no need for these water purification rites because I am making all things new and making all things clean, and I'm doing it in abundance. He didn't have to do six water jars full of wine, of water, turn it to wine. But what, what it shows is abundance. That that's exactly what the kingdom of God brings. It brings abundance. It brings abundance of everything. And so we've got to, to be looking for the establishment of the kingdom. And how is his kingdom established? And where is it established? Well, first it's established in us. And then we become heralds of the kingdom in the same way when he sent the disciples out to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. What did he do? He sent them out to proclaim it, but then he also said, do these things. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, those kinds of things. They were accompanied by signs. 
And that's what Paul says to the Corinthian church is, is that when I came among you, I didn't do, I preached nothing except Christ and him crucified. I preached a simple message to you, but that message was accompanied by power. And that's exactly what we see all through the book of Acts is the power of the Holy Spirit working through the people of God. That, and that power is what attracted a lot of attention to the church. And so in this 1 Corinthians passage that we're in now, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11, and you see the manifestation, the continuing manifestation slash revelation of, of God and Jesus Christ in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're intended to be a continuing revelation and demonstration of the power of God the power of God to change lives, but the power of God also to work through his people. Because Jesus said, greater things than these will you do. So we should have an expectation that in the church we'll see God move and do things like he did in the life of Jesus and in the church through the book of Acts. So he, he, Paul's telling the church here, now in Corinth there were many temples to pagan gods. It was a very pagan place, a very wealthy place. It was also known as a, as a very immoral place. A lot of prostitution there because it was a big trading center. And so there were, there were many, many Roman gods and temples worshipped in this place. And it was a serious business in Corinth for the, to worship these idols and to sell idols and other things that were associated with them. So he, he comes here now, and, and there were prophets in that place as well, but they would typically go into caves for their prophecy, and then they would get sort of ecstatically produced through methane gas, probably, um, and then would come and give these words. And so you get this, this entire uh, thing that's, that's based on a belief that, that there's supernatural power involved. And so here Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And it could have been through these prophets that I was talking about who've gone down into the caves and then come back with a, quote, word of prophecy. And so they were leading people astray. But these ecstatic visions that people were given through this this idol worship and through the worship of these pagan gods, like I said, particularly went through this whole prophetic thing through the caves. So they were led astray by those things because the, it wasn't a voice from the Holy Spirit. And if it's not a voice from the Holy Spirit, if it's not a voice from God, then it's leading you in a different direction. And so he says, you know, you were led astray before. But now you've come out of that, and you've come into something new. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, so what he's doing is he's assuring them that if they can make the statement that Jesus is Lord, then they have the Holy Spirit of God. And and they don't get a portion of it, a little bit of the Holy Spirit. No, they, they have the Holy Spirit living in them. And I heard uh, Terry Fulham, who, who was formerly an Episcopal priest, um, who was sort of the, the grandfather of the charismatic movement within the uh, Episcopal Church, I, I listened to some of Terry's teachings this week on this very passage because they're some of the best you'll ever hear. Um, it, they, they really are fantastic. And, and what, he's, what his argument there is is just to say it's not that people who don't manifest the gifts of the Spirit have less of the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit has less of them, which relates back to that Walter Lewis Wilson 
uh, thing that the example I gave to you earlier, when, when, when he says that he gave his body, his life to the Holy Spirit. See the same thing in Rwanda, actually, and then, then from there all into all of Central and Eastern Africa in the 1930s when revival broke out there. It broke out in some unusual ways. And um, it, there was a lot of manifestations of the Holy Spirit there, along with public confession of sin and restitution for any wrongs that had been done. But the, but the Holy Spirit fell. There was a guy named Joe Church who had been there for a while, and he had been trying to minister, but he felt just incredibly dry. And so he decided to take a little sabbatical, and he ran, went to Uganda, and he hung out with another guy there, and they began to pray because they felt like something was missing in their lives. They felt like the Holy Spirit wasn't active enough in their lives. And so they, like Walter Lewis Wilson, decided what needed to happen was is that, that they didn't need to continually ask God for something. They needed to yield themselves to him and pursue and seek after holiness and righteousness. And when they did, that they what they found was the Holy Spirit became way more active in their lives and in their ministry and blessed it in remarkable ways. And this revival began in a little place called Gahini, which is not too far, maybe 30, 45 minutes outside of Kigali nowadays on a good road. So it's just as a tiny little mission outpost. But that's where the East African revival began. And it began with these sort of ecstatic expressions of a movement of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin first. And then as they became convicted of sin, they confessed their sins, they repented of their sins, they made restitution wherever that was, was possible. And then you began to see manifestations of the Spirit, an explosion of the church and an explosion of revival that carried its way all through East Africa. So so Paul is assuring his people, you have the Holy Spirit. You know, just because you don't have manifestations in your life, what it likely means is, is that you're not yielded enough to him. So he says there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. He says these same basic things in, a, in, in his letter to the church at Ephesus as well, but why does he do it? What, what I told you earlier was that they worshiped many gods, and so what Paul's saying here is, is, is that it's different in Christianity. There may be varieties of things, but there's one spirit. There are varieties of service, same Lord, varieties of activities, the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Everyone. So there's only one God. Let me stop there with you guys and tell you there's only one. You don't have to go to this temple and that temple and that temple. You don't have to make a choice between temples. There's only one God. So to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Ah, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And Paul gives next what is not an, intended to be an exhaustive list of those gifts no, what, what he's saying is, is that, that the body of Christ only works well when everybody is manifesting and using and living and ministering in the gift that you've been given personally. But it's there for the common good. So we're not complete if some of us are not expressing and using those gifts. You're withholding something from the body. The body is less than it ought to be because we're not yielded enough to the Holy Spirit that the, the fruit and the gift can manifest through our lives. So he goes on then and he explains, some of the, for, for one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. In other words, it sees a problem and it knows what to do about that problem. That's what wisdom would be. It would be, we have knowledge and wisdom is, what do we do with that knowledge? 
And so that's what it would mean, the, the utterance of wisdom. And I've certainly been in enough meetings and uh, tried to come through certain kinds of problems when suddenly somebody will have a great clarity of insight on what can be done. That happens in the business world, but it also happens in the church world. And so it, you never know who it's going to come through. It's just whoever God chooses at that moment. It doesn't mean that you have a constant gift of wisdom. No, it means situationally God gives that wisdom to somebody if they're willing to speak through that that spirit. To another, given the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. Because sometimes the problem isn't wisdom. Sometimes it's knowledge. It's just simple knowledge. But, But what we have to have is an understanding of the knowledge that's contained in the Word of God and also knowledge about what's happening in the world. So there's knowledge in two different realms, right? There's knowledge in the church realm and and also in the worldly realm, and both those are important things for people to bring to us. We need to know that we live in a post-Christian world, which is a good thing for evangelism because people don't even know the basics of the gospel. They know what they think they know, but they don't know. And so we, we need the knowledge to know how to do the mission. And then another, by faith, by the same Spirit. Now, we were looking at a piece of property, and um, it was a great risk for the church uh, to do this. And I had a group of elders, and so we met, and, and they had absolute and perfect faith for this. And as God gave them that faith, and during the whole thing with Will, I was given the gift of faith to believe and know that this was all going to be fine to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, and I've certainly seen that operating in the church. And, and it doesn't mean that these are permanent gifts that you're going to have. You, you don't always have the gift of healing. Nobody prays for everybody and they get well. But there are some people, sometimes God chooses a person to say, if that person prays, then, then God will do it through that person. And the person who receives healing is the one who really received the gift of healing. And there are people who do, who, through whom God works on a normal or, or more than occasional basis. And those people are said to have a, a ministry of healing, but, but they don't, that doesn't mean they have the gift of healing because that means it would operate that way all the time. And to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. And so all these manifestations are intended for the church, but they're intended to come about through people. What I think we've done in too many cases is is that we have made the church professional, and we've not taken lay people seriously enough. We have have said, okay, so there's a guy who preaches and teaches. There's a guy who does this. There's other people who do music, and, and then everybody else congregates. Well, that's not the way it's intended to be. No, we're each given a gift for the common good. And, and so the church needs all of us. And that starts at the top down, that, that realization, because you've got to raise that up. Because too long, what we've done is made it exactly what I explained, rather than empowering the people. One of the characteristics of that, that East African revival was taking the lay people seriously. There were no famous preachers raised up out of that revival. Even the man, Joe Church, that I mentioned earlier, was not ordained. And it was his thing always to raise up people the Spirit was raising up and putting those people out there to do the preaching and the teaching and all that kind of stuff. He, he, he didn't take a lead role for himself because his thing was the Spirit's doing this. And it's empowering people. And the more we empower people, the more we live by this belief and understanding that God uh, works through his people. 
and he speaks to his people through his people, then the better off the church will be and the more power we will have. But we have to recognize that, that it's the desire of the Holy Spirit to manifest himself in and through the church in order to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he and only he is the name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. And so it points always to the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. And that's what empowers the church on Pentecost, was the giving of the Holy Spirit. After that, in order that the church could continue the work and the mission of Jesus on the earth and bring glory to him, so that ultimately we will see the fulfillment and participate in the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision for the wedding feast of the Lamb. When, when it is indeed married, it is indistinguishable, the land from the Lord.